and welcome to Shattered Lives, an informed, conversational, cutting-edge radio show in touch with today's issues that impact the lives of crime victims, addressing the aftermath of crime, forging a path for hope, building awareness, and empowering listeners for the future. This is Donna Argor, a.k.a. Lady Justice, your host, with my co-host, Delilah Jones, president of ImaginePublicity.com, welcoming you to today's show and to our library of weekly archive shows. It is our goal to make a difference, as always. So good morning, uh, good day, everyone, depending on uh, what region of the country you are in listening to this live or or taped. Um, it's a pleasure to have you as listeners, as always. And we have a very unique show and uh, today it's something that I've been working on for several weeks, and uh, we're very glad to have um, uh, first responders representing a very unique program today. So before I int- introduce them individually, I'd like to uh, bring on Delilah. Good morning. Do you have your French press coffee next to you, Delilah? <laughs> well, actually, I have a cup of tea this morning. It's a little chilly for um, for the beach, but... We're getting through it. Uh-huh. <laughs> but this is, you know, it's it's really nice to do a show like this every once in a while. I mean, most of the, you know, most of the topics that we touch on are crime-related and, you know, kind of on the dark side, so to speak. And I think that, you know, by showcasing some really positive things that are happening in my area, in, in South Carolina, um, is, is a great way to go, and I think the listeners will will really be happy to have this information. Uh, definitely, and like I say, I I want to um, make my effort toward this too. It's very important to me because, as you know, I have an investment in your area too, being a homeowner there. So, without further ado, let me bring in um, just by way of a very brief introduction, um, Matt Bernacki and Gerald Mishu, who are with the, uh, well, one is with, the, I believe, Myrtle Beach uh, fire, Firefighters, and Gerald, I believe, is, is with, the, with the same association but in the Charleston area. Uh, and if I've made an inaccurate statement, they, they're more than welcome to, um, to uh, correct me. But, gentlemen, thank you so much for being on Shattered Lives. It's a pleasure to have you today. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Oh, it, it, like I say, like Delilah had said, it, it's very, it's very important that we impart some of these programs that I don't know maybe get lost in the shuffle, and not a lot of people know them. And by having our national presence, that's one of the best things I like about doing this show. So I don't know. Would each of you just like to give maybe a little thumbnail um, sketch about your your background, how you got involved with this, and then we'll go into kind of the meat of the matter. Uh, Matt, would you like to start? Sure, sure. I'd be glad to. I've been a firefighter for Myrtle Beach for 10 years, and I've always been involved in uh, obviously helping people. That's part of why I got into this job. But in our profession in the fire service, a lot of the needs and the things that firefighters take care of, we sometimes forget to take care of ourselves and to let ourselves have some time to process and, and digest the things that we encounter and the things we see. Uh, so in uh, the last maybe four or five years, um, I got in contact uh, with Gerald, and uh, he is part of a peer support program that was getting developed uh, 
shortly after the Charleston 9 incident happened. Um, Gerald can give you a little history on how that all came about, but um, it originally started just in the Charleston area, and as the years went on, it progressed and evolved into a statewide program, and that's how I got involved. And what this program is is it's a peer it's a peer support system that's meant to help other firefighters that are having difficulties. Oh, okay. Uh, Gerald, would you like to give us your perspective on how you you got initially involved with this venture, and then we can go from there? Yes, I had uh, actually had a full career and retired from the fire service in, in 2007 when the Charleston 9 uh, tragedy happened. Uh, I was asked by the uh, leadership of the South Carolina State Firefighters Association to come back out of retirement, so to speak, and help them start a counseling uh, unit, a counseling team to administer to the needs of the Charleston firefighters and their families. And But ones of you who are listening that don't know of the Charleston Nine, it was a tragedy that occurred in June of 2007 when nine Charleston firefighters were killed in a, the collapse of a furniture store. Um, and um, we, we had no programs like this in place. And so the South Carolina State Firefighters Association, which is an organization that has been in existence since 1905, representing all of the firefighters in South Carolina, um, they came down to Charleston and stepped in to try to help organize some sort of effort to take care of our firefighters. Um, uh, it's important to know that um, there are 17,753 firefighters in the state of South Carolina. 503 fire departments and so uh, this was a big undertaking just to do it for Charleston but as we began to do it for Charleston and we we got into it for a year about a year and a half we realized that this was a program that really needed to be made available to all of our membership throughout the state and so with wow. the blessings and help of the uh, state association we uh, branched out of Charleston and began uh, expanded the team and named it the Firefighter Assistance and Support Team, the FAST Team. And so we went about state training and recruiting and getting other people that had the same interests that we did to form this statewide team. And the state now, uh, the state of South Carolina is now covered by four regions. Uh, we have members uh, in uh, a regional coordinator in each region. We have a statewide leader who, um, who kind of keeps us all on, on course and then we're very fortunate in our individual regions to have members of various fire departments and EMS systems who belong to our teams and who work together and travel together. Wow, and it sounds very oh. impressive. Go ahead, Lana. I was just going to ask, Gerald, um, with, with all of the firefighters that we have throughout the state, how many are volunteers who actually volunteer their time with no pay and and so forth versus career you know people who are are in this as a career in uh, South Carolina the numbers are approximately 13,000 are volunteers and 5500 are are somewhere thereabouts I, I, I should say 4500 are paid people wow and i think you know i think that really speaks training? to the I'm sorry. Go ahead. I'm sorry. I was just going to say, I just think that that speaks very highly of the people out there who are willing to put their, literally put their lives on the line as a volunteer, um, you know, for our safety. Absolutely. And the important part of our team is our team is made up, uh, the FAST team 
is made up of volunteers. We uh, None of us get paid to do this. We travel about and we take care of our folks at home. We travel about to support one another in times of great need, such as a firefighter fatality or a major disaster. Uh, so sometimes our regions, all four regions, will have membership in one location of the state taking care of a, of a situation that needs needs to be handled. Um, in addition mm-hmm. to, and this is an important part of what we do, in addition to our counseling, our peer counseling side, uh, we have a clinical component to our team, which is um, we have been able to strike a, um, a partnership, if you will, with the South Carolina Department of Mental Health. And in five mental health centers throughout the state, we have trained clinicians. Our team has trained clinicians in the fire service culture, the fire service way of life, the fire service way of talking, and so on and so forth, uh, so that they have a better uh, handle on how to help firefighters. And when we um, are, um, when we see someone in the field that needs help, and uh, most of the time uh, a peer contact will get them over over the hump and through a bad time, but when we recognize as a peer that it's outside of our pay grade, so to speak, we have clinicians that we can refer those folks to it to get that clinical level uh, treatment that they need. Yeah, that's very important. Do you, um, do they, re- either of you, do, do they receive the volunteers, firefighters versus the paid, do they receive the same exact training? Yeah, they, they do. You know, each fire department has their own set of training, but they are all state certified and the classes that they offer to their firefighters are all state fire academy level classes. Okay. So, yes, they are. The volunteers, for the most part, are trained. And the training programs we have for our team to be members of our of the FAST team, everybody's expected to meet the same requirements. So whether you're a chief or a firefighter, whether you're a volunteer or a paid person, uh, we all uh, get the same training and, and provide are provided the same level of training. Mm, well, that's 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 reassuring to know, and it, it you know stands to reason that it, it should be. Um, before we get into sort of the um, nitty gritty of of what the process is and all of that, um, the, the 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 peer counseling, the grief counseling aspect, and some of the things that you've net you've formed the network for, is this also available to other types of first responders? In other words. If um, if police officers are killed or uh, severely wounded, or you know ambulance uh, professionals and all of that, or is this strictly a firefighter um, venture? Uh, we're proud of the fact that our uh, clinical uh, team here in the Low Country of South Carolina, the coastal part of South Carolina, has um, branched off and has begun to do. Um, counseling and clinical care for uh, EMS and law enforcement. Um, even though it's deeply rooted in our team and deeply rooted in the fire service, we changed the clinical component to that of our team to what we call the uh, um, first responders network. And so uh, we do have some paramedics. Uh, we we ourselves on our teams, because we believe that fire and EMS are so closely together, Myrtle Beach, for instance, they run EMS in the fire department. So we mm-hmm. don't we don't delineate between paramedics and, and firefighters, even though there is a different culture in some parts of the state. The law enforcement uh, community, on the other hand, is a is a totally different animal and has a totally different culture. And they have programs in place to take care of them, but we have never turned away from a police officer. And yes, we have helped law enforcement people, and we'll continue to do that. 
we are currently uh, involved, getting it, getting involved in uh, creating a partnership and a relationship with. Uh, it's called the Leap, L-E-A-P, and that's the Law Enforcement Assistance Program, and that program is uh, similar and different in some ways to the support that our Fast Team offers. So it's kind of a new venture a new partnership that's in the works to try to get everybody on the same page and, and develop some of the same um, um, procedures to reach out to people. Well, well that, that's wonderful. I think the more networking like organizations can do and work together as a team, it can only help uh, when we have mass tragedies as they did, you know, in, in Charleston at the church and whatnot. But can we dispel the myth? I mean, maybe this is a myth that some people have. Like, if we use that initial example about how this program began and the Charleston Nine, was there certain things that you could identify that just totally went wrong and that that many first responders um, died? I mean, what can you can you go through that a little bit as an example? Um, you know, what occurred during that during that tragedy where you said, you know, okay, enough is enough and we have to do something differently? Or could it well, could it not have been avoided? Well I don't think it's something that could have been avoided, no. Um when nine eleven happened in New York City, that was a, a tragic event and, and the fire department in New York recognized that they were going to need to get their firefighters some help, some clinical help to help deal with those things. And what they wound up doing was sending in some clinicians and professionals into the firehouses to kind of gather some information and kind of get a feed off of everybody. Um, the problem that was faced at that time was that the clinical help that was sent in did not really have a background a good knowledge, a good familiarity with the fire service. Our fire service people are a very unique breed of people, and the way we process things and the way we digest things and the way we hold on to things is very different from other professions and other people. So in a sense, the clinicians that were initially sent in were not very well prepared to deal with some of those things that they faced. So when there was not much success, how that all went about, the FDNY realized and recognized that it might be easier to get through to other firefighters by using other firefighters, by using their mm -hmm. peers. So they I began think. to train they began to train a little bit some of the more experienced uh elder elderly uh folks, experienced aged guys in the fire department and they served as uh, that initial starting point to getting people some help further than just having conversations with peers. Mm -hmm. When the Charleston Nine happened, uh, it was very similar in how it was recognized that there was going to be a need to get some Charleston firefighters some help, and some of the some of the folks that were involved with the FDNY program came down to Charleston to help them set up a program on a peer level similar to what they had. Right. And well, it became very successful. There were more firefighters that were willing to show their vulnerability and reach out to get help through the relationships they formed with their peers. 
Yeah, and I think they would be more apt to open up to a colleague versus a stranger that doesn't really know the culture for firefighting. You Absolutely. Know, you know, I think. Go ahead. I think, uh, you know, what? How can you address with a lot of these people as far as the stigma that goes along with go, reaching out and asking for help if you need it? A lot of times, people tend to internalize everything and really don't even realize themselves that they they need help and that's one of the that's one of the big things we try to address and that's one of the big misconceptions that we like to that we would like to change out there you know for most of the fire service tradition there has been the mentality of suck it up just keep it inside this is what we do this is what we see deal with it you know that's part of our job and over time, it's shown that keeping everything inside, internalizing everything, and not giving yourself a chance to process that leads to stress and leads to overfilling that psychological backpack, if you will. And over time, that backpack gets heavy, and those straps get heavy, and something's going to give, something's going to go. And all that buildup of stress usually leads to something bad be it right. problems, you know, breakdowns, anything. So the old mentality of suck it up, deal with it, is is definitely a misconception that we're trying to change out there. There's nothing and wrong with And is that changing, Matt? I mean, through through, organ, through your program and things like that, we're, we're not, you know, ever strong in the macho firefighters. And, I mean, how hard is it to break that that conception? It's much easier now. Um, if I could back up a moment, uh, when you talked about operational things, one of the things that we uh, don't do and we we purposely shy away from is we don't we don't go into any community or any fire department and and have anything to say about what happened operationally. When you have a major uh, tragedy involving the death of firefighters or the injuries of firefighters, there's always going to be plenty of people asking questions and pointing fingers and. One of the problems that we had in Charleston and that they have in every city, they had it in New York and they've had it every place uh, that they've had um, line-of-duty deaths, is that you know people will try to blame the fire department administration or blame someone for the failure and the cause of these firefighters being killed. And uh, that in itself is a huge problem to overcome because in Charleston there were so many federal agencies and outside and independent agencies that came into Charleston that evaluated them and inspected them and uh, analyzed them and did all sorts of things. There were all kinds of reports written, and a lot of them were very scathing reports. And that's difficult for firefighters um, in a department that you know loved their city and loved their department to face that criticism, especially in in light of the death of their comrades. So we we had a real job in coming in and trying to build some trust. And when you talk about stigma, it's kind of funny that you mention stigma because the first year we were in operation, we called ourselves the Stigma Busters. And one of the things we had to do is to try to change people's attitudes about getting help. And I can remember early on in the process, we had a, when we needed to send someone for clinical help, we sent them to the local mental health center. And they would go, the firefighter would go over to the mental health center, and we had already had difficulty convincing him to go. And so he would go to the mental health center, and he would sit in the uh, waiting room with the general population folks who may have had all sorts of issues you know, and uh, to be there at the mental health center. And it didn't take me about two trips 
for a couple of firefighters to come back out of there and say, we're not going to the mental health center. We're not sitting over there in the general population because, number one, we had difficulty getting them to admit that they might need some help, and they just didn't want to be a part of that. So we actually retooled ourselves in the first month or so and and got a, uh, rented a private office and set up a private office with a private entrance so that our firefighters could come without being seen and out be, without, um, you know, running into anyone they knew. And we would um, schedule appointments, clinical appointments, uh, 90 minutes apart. So one mm-hmm. could get in and get his one-hour appointment done and be gone before the second person came. Uh, and that oh, has changed cool. dramatically now. I mean, we've had 700 and 725 people, I believe, come through the program here in Charleston alone through the clinical program. Is that program. right? Wow. And, um, it, you know, there's now, you know, you'll go there and there'll be three or four people sitting in the waiting room waiting their turn. And they 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 develop race relationships because they come from different fire departments. And, uh, you know, it, that stigma is simply not there anymore. So it took a while to overcome that stigma. And it's a very important part of, of that. And, and that's why our training programs that we do we have a second half to our team which is a training component and we have written um about six different programs ourselves and then we have several programs from the national fallen firefighters uh, foundation that we go out and teach to firefighters and we use these teaching sessions these classes as a way to segue into the fire department to, to gain their trust and to gain their interest in our program and then we'll always, typically, at, at any of these training classes, we'll have firefighters approach us afterwards and say, you know, they're having some issues and can we help them? And so it's it's kind of a a, a full service full service team, so to speak. Yeah, that that's very impressive. You know, uh, Gerald or Matt, I was wondering as I was listening to you, I I can see that it parallels because I'm a homicide survivor. My dad was murdered in 1981. Um, and trying to go initially to get some counseling, mental health training after something like that, and invariably, because ours happened in 1981, there just were not hardly any services available. And did they find out, or, or maybe in certain pockets of South Carolina, did you try to go into a traditional mental health counseling place? The counselors just cannot address the issue that they're there for. Did you encounter that? Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons we took it upon ourselves to recruit uh, clinicians to be a part of our team, so that we could then um, we could then provide training for them. Or, or you know, they've done all sorts of things in addition to classroom training and internet training. Our clinicians have actually been taken down to the uh, fire department training facilities, and they've gone gone through the flashover chambers, and they've gone into smokehouses, and they've experienced what firefighters experience, and so. It gives them a real, um, real set of tools to be able to understand when a firefighter is is, um, is sharing some sort of uh, some sort of problem they've experienced on the job. Uh-huh. That that's very important for those counselors to be familiar with our culture, the the the, the way that firefighters talk, the way that we act, uh, is very different, and it's very easy for somebody to be, to be taken aback by our demeanor sometimes uh it's not that we are a, an insensitive group but the things that we see and the things that we do are everyday occurrences for us and and we've built up a certain callousness uh, uh to it so a lot of the details and and uh in-depth things that we encounter we can 
express in a very uh, easygoing manner. And, and sometimes, sure, because you have your own language and, you know, you, you understand each other, right? Yeah, very much so. And it's important yeah. that if somebody's going to get clinical help, it's very important that that clinician, that that professional is aware of that. Um, actually, in uh, 2007, when I was um, asked to come back in and work in this team, um, I, I kind of was um, surprised, to be honest with you, that I was contacted because I said to the person who who was trying to hire me, I said, um, I don't I don't understand what I can do. I'm just an old retired firefighter. What can I do for a counseling team? And um, mm-hmm. so my initial responsibilities were to train the clinicians on the team in the fire service culture. That was basically my job description in a nutshell. They wanted someone who understood the fire service culture to come back and teach these clinicians because the clinicians were going out and talking to firefighters or seeing firefighters in an office setting. They had no idea what some of these folks were talking about. I mean, you know, we have our own language. We have our own jargon. We have our own way of doing things. We... um, you know, firefighters see themselves as lifesavers and uh, rescuers, and, you know, it's not an e- ego thing. It's just a determination thing. When we don't do well at that, we we beat ourselves up pretty badly. We're yeah, some I'm of our sure. Worst critics. Very and, uh, opening. Mm-hmm. Uh, can I ask, um, uh, there's a couple things I was wondering what might be helpful to continue to paint the picture. Excuse me. Um, with regard to some, I want to get into, you know, what, what constitutes like a peer counselor and what happens, how you set that up. But also, Matt, in, you know, trying to make conversation with you about doing this show, I know that you are sort of what I would consider to be like a field staff person. Can you give us like a hypothetical scenario or maybe you, you can give us a real one without mentioning names with regard to, okay, say there is an incident. What what do you do as a peer counselor to start from beginning to end? What 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 goes on? You know, A B C D kind of thing. Can you paint a picture for us with that? Sure, sure, sure. Well, okay. first let me say a, a member of the peer counseling team can be notified for anything. Um, it does not have to strictly be incident related. Um, okay. But that being said, when, when there is a, a major tragic event, we can get called in from that department and ask to uh, basically stop by is kind of how we word it. Stop by, talk to the guys, see how they're doing, and it's a very lighthearted, informal kind of drop-in. Um, we, It's very important that we identify ourselves as FAST team members and peer supporters, but also as firefighters to try to start that rapport. Um, initially, that first visit, sometimes it's pretty quick. You're kind of having an informal discussion around the dinner table, uh, shooting the breeze a little bit with the guy, the guys telling them that, yes, we understand that they had a bad accident and a, a tragic event, and here's some of the normal feelings that you're going to encounter. Here's what to look for. And we stress to each other and to the, everybody that's there that we know each other the best. We live with each other a third of our lives, so we know what our normal behaviors are. So keep an eye out for each other and keep an eye on people that are acting out of the norm. Um, We usually, well, we always leave our information should anybody want to get a hold of us. Um, After that point, a few different things can happen. 
we've noticed a lot of times in the past after that informal around the dinner table kind of discussion, there's a lot of head nodding and there's a lot of people that are receiving what we're giving out, but they're still a little reluctant to reach out to us and show that vulnerability. So after we kind of have that initial conversation, we always make ourselves available by hanging around a little bit at the fire station afterwards. Check out their station, walk around the rigs. We kind of split up. The team kind of splits up. So if somebody is there that wants to make a little bit more contact with us, we can kind of provide an opportunity for them to pull us aside and have some alone time, and they could talk with us a little bit more and explain how they're feeling and things like that. And then from that point, we can we can decide if they need some clinical help, some professional help, if they need some time off work, if they need this, if they need that, and that sort of thing. When that doesn't happen, when we don't get any real contact after that initial conversation, uh, like I said, we'll leave our contact information with everybody. And it could be a couple days later, it could be a couple weeks later, somebody will call us back and let us know, hey, this person's having problems or this person's having some issues, or that actual individual might call and say, hey, I met you a couple days ago when you stopped by and I'm not feeling too good about this and that, and, and I'd like to talk with you some more. So mm-hmm. we can set up an individual meeting uh, to to uh, dig a little deeper into the root of the problem and kind of see where they're at and what they're feeling and how they would like to go about getting some help and getting some treatment. What um, kind so of from, do you present to them at, at that point? Well, that's part of one of our big components as as one of the peer members. We almost act like a liaison from getting the firefighter help to actually getting them help. We help them go through the logistical issues of filling out some paperwork and explaining some insurance benefits, but we also um, almost vouch for the clinical side that we're sending them to. You know, we spoke of it earlier about there's a lot of clinicians and, and doctors out there that are not familiar with the fire service culture, and it's difficult for somebody that does need help to reach out to somebody, especially when they don't know them. So it's important for us to be able to know our clinicians and know our counselors that are out there so we could match up their characteristics and personality traits with the same firefighter that needs some help. So we're almost trying to get a trust from the firefighter that they will trust us in pointing them to a good counselor, a good doctor, a good psychiatrist, whatever they need. So you're almost immediately after that initial peer thing, setting that, trying to uh, encourage them to go to see a professional person, whoever it may be. But do you also have, um, like, you know, survivors of homicide or other groups, like a monthly peer support group where you meet formally where anyone, you know, it's an open-door policy and you can come in and, or, uh, you know, get support in that manner as well? No, there's really nothing formally like that. Um, a big part of what we try to do is just get an awareness out there that this program is available. Um, there isn't really a, a, a set schedule of our team going out and meeting with departments and saying, hey, hey, here we are. Um, it's more of... Uh, On an individual basis? 
Yeah, it's more on an individual basis, yes. You know, and, and each department knows that we're out there, um, so they're able to let their personnel know that this is available to them. And uh, that's another um, uh, thing that our training uh, does for us, because when we go out, you know, we do go out to individual departments upon request and conduct training programs for them. And uh, many times those training classes, training programs will be a way for us to to make those initial contacts for someone who might need to get some counseling or get some help. So uh, we, we do, and we, you know, we do station visits where we just stop by and speak to folks and not necessarily in a formal, uh, you know, formal setting, but just to say hello and we put out brochures and cards and things. So people, we're pretty well known uh, in the state. People can uh, can access us pretty easily. Great. Ms. Donna, there was one, one thing in, that we just talked mm-hmm. about I wanted to clear up. Uh, you said uh, that sometimes it's an immediate callback that we get from incidents. Um, yeah, sometimes there's an immediate response from people, but a lot of times it, it is not, time, right? not an immediate. Yeah, it can be a long right. time. And, and uh, some of these things that firefighters experience when it comes to traumatic events and, and big events, it's usually another weight that's put on their shoulders. And initially, they might not realize the the weight of it, and it might be weeks, it might be months, it might not come at all. But it's not always an immediate. Right, and I understand we... that. I understand that. I I kind of misspoke there. My apologies. I I really do understand that. Um, with respect to like um, the the involvement with the Department of Mental Health in the state of South Carolina, can you tell people what what are the benefits? I know that there's there's um insurance um coverage um are there are there funds available so that people can go to ongoing counseling what's what's that aspect of it like um back in 2007 our program the initial program in charleston was funded by the city of charleston proper they took care of our expenses and paid our bills and so forth and that's where we got our funding in the doors were open to anyone in the fire service who wanted to come in to get counseling, regardless of department. And that was a way for Charleston to kind of take care of their own people and also give back to the fire service community that supported them so heavily after the tragedy. So for the first um, five years or so, almost six years, we functioned as the Charleston Firefighter Support Team. And then uh, we lost that funding um, in 2000, at the end of 2012. So in 2013, we changed the local team's name, and we went out and then spread out and and, and started uh, providing services to any and everybody that needed that. Uh, along about the same time is when the FAST team began to flourish and to grow statewide. But what we knew at the time was that uh, there was not going to be money to pay for counseling as there had been in the first five or six years, so we needed to fill that gap and to overcome that gap. So we went to the leadership of the State Firefighters Association, and um, they have a, an insurance program in the, in the association that pays disability insurance, life insurance, and some other insurance benefits for their members. So they went to Provident Insurance Company, who had to underwrite those policies, and asked Provident if we could get a rider, if we could get a policy to provide counseling services for our firefighters. And Providence stepped up to the plate. Our initial program uh, the very first year was 
$1,000 benefit per incident per year. So if a person had a, uh, if a firefighter had a bad call or had a traumatic um, response to, to a call and needed uh, clinical help, Provident would pay up to $1,000 per incident. So, you know, if they'd had three or four bad incidents in a year, they'd get $1,000 for each one of those. Um, mm-hmm. Since that time, Provident has increased that benefit to $5,000 per incident. Really? Um, and it, it um, uh, the only um, weakness in that particular program is it only takes care of firefighters, and it only takes care of firefighters who have an incident-driven problem. Many of the people we see in our counseling program, uh, both peer and on the clinical side, are uh, people who are experiencing difficulties from some life events, uh, a divorce, financial problems, alcoholism, substance abuse, mm-hmm. uh, anger, Domestic grief. violence, anything, yeah. Uh-huh. So that, and, uh, Provident, Provident won't pay for that. Okay. That is not They're covered not under the private plan. Right. So what but we've they done may have other benefits? They have other health insurance that will help pay for that. Uh, and okay. so far, we've been able to uh, get along fairly well with that uh, using health insurance. But there are a lot of volunteer fire departments, 13,000 members in volunteer fire departments around the state. And many of them uh, don't have health insurance unless they have it on a secondary job or on their not their secondary job, but their primary job. Um, and so we still have a gap there that we're trying to fill, but we're, we're doing a pretty good job of seeing that people get care. And it's also important to understand that our families get care as well. We, we take care of firefighters and their families. So their children, their wives, uh, anybody in the firefighter family who is experiencing difficulty that needs clinical help, we can help them get clinical help because we believe uh, in order to keep our firefighters healthy, we need to try to help them keep their family healthy. Yeah. Wow. That that's excellent. Were you, um, Matt? Did you mention to me a while back that you were involved with the um, Charleston Church massacre directly? Uh, no, not not me. No. Okay. <laughs> no. And maybe I, I, I was. I, out or something. I responded to it. I was there. You were there. Okay. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about that? That experience. Well, it's. it's Obviously, a very tragic situation, and, and yes. one that just took everybody by total surprise. And it was just a lot of, uh, a lot of, you know, just a lot of sadness, a lot of confusion, a lot of uh, not understanding what's happening, what's going on. Uh, I actually wound up um, uh, at the at a local hotel where they had gathered all the families together, um, and to to await news on, uh, you know, what had exactly happened and so forth. And it was a uh, it was a very sad, sad time to say the least. And it actually was a hotel where the command post had been for the uh, counseling efforts and the recovery efforts for the Charleston Nine. So, it, it, in, in addition to being sad because of the church shooting, it brought back a lot of terrible memories for us. And so, it was a very difficult time. Uh, Charleston, as you know, um, and as everybody has seen, uh, not only Charleston but South Carolina and the people in the community really stood together. It showed just how strong people are here and how forgiving people can be, uh, and, and even to the extent that it amazed me in some instances. Yeah, yeah, I I was absolutely amazed. You know, we've had our own in Connecticut, the Sandy Hook, Newtown, and um, I think our governor handled that uh, well. But but again, uh, forgiveness 
I think you're heads above us in terms of forgiveness for that. And um, so I don't know. I'm always amazed at people's compassion and resilience uh, with these things. But is there, tell us, we have about 19 minutes or so remaining of the show, just so to give you a little bit of a time reference here. I'm getting a little feedback there. I'm not sure what that is, but just to let you know. Um, Can you tell us once a firefighter goes through an incident and goes through your program and maybe they're diagnosed with PTSD or, or you know, they have a physical disability requiring uh, intensive rehabilitation, what percentage are, are able to come back to work and do they, do they definitely want to? And what, what is it like from that perspective? Um, I, I can speak to uh, numbers in Charleston um, in the Charleston program um, because okay. that's where we kept the best records in the early years. But um, one thing that's important to understand between the peer side of our program and the clinical side of our program is the numbers are normally about 10 to 1, meaning the peer peer team normally takes care of 10 people for every for one person that goes to clinical health. Um, oh. Which means mm-hmm. that we're either getting people early on in the problems that won't with, with problems that we can help them handle and sort out. They just need a shoulder to lean on or someone to talk to for a few minutes. Uh, so the peer team, uh, for instance, in Charleston in the first six years, we um, we had documented over 7,000 peer contacts. But uh, in those 7,000 peer contacts, about 700 of them at the time had actually gone to get clinical care. So that's where we see that 10 to 1 uh, number, so to speak. But Go ahead. Well, that speaks volumes in terms of your your ability to kind of nip it in the bud and to get them early and, and to help, I mean, so that they don't have to go through. And is this kind of a, um, you know, a sort of a revolving door kind of thing where the initial acute phase and you might help them then and then, you know, maybe, you know, they have a flashback or something else that reminds them such as, staying in the same hotel in Charleston, and they might come back and revisit and may need your help again. Is that true? Absolutely. And over a period, we're talking about almost eight years now, so over a period of eight years we've had people who have come in once or twice and who have gotten the uh, help that they needed and they've not ever come back. We have people that continue to come once a month, come regularly monthly for the last seven or eight years. They come to get their, uh, they call it their tune-up. Uh, we encourage people to come yep. as much as they need to come because in the life of a firefighter, what troubled him eight years ago is maybe far distant than what troubled him yesterday. So we want right. them to be able to come and have this service uh, whenever they need it. And uh, so it's an ongoing process. And, you know, our some people may say, well, if you're, if you're seeing that many people in a peer setting but only so many are getting the clinical care, are you sure they're getting the care that they need? We, we consider ourselves, our peer teams, all over the state to be very well trained and they're very well trained because they all of our training is is vetted or is uh, is looked over by our clinicians and as a matter of fact our clinicians work with us and do some of the training for us so we're very careful to to at least have a good idea of what to do in the field uh and uh the strong point about our program is we have clinicians available to us on the team and we can make a phone call in the middle of the night and talk to them and get some direction if we if we have a questionable uh, incident with someone. So we work very closely with the, with the peers and this is a very, um, excuse me, with the clinicians. And that's a very mm-hmm. important part of the success of our program. 
Wow. Uh, the more I the more I hear, the more impressed I am with you know just the the entire program. It it sounds wonderful. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about um, uh, a meeting that you had the other day with regard to um, to um, perhaps forging a, a network uh, collaboration with the colleges? Sure, sure. Um, you know, like like Gerald and I were just talking about, it's very important to have uh, in our network clinicians and professionals that we can trust and that we know are going to be familiar with our culture. Um, we need to develop different relationships with different organizations and different groups of professionals that can offer their services to us and, and become good assets to us. Um, I was made uh, aware of a group out of Florence, South Carolina, um, that expressed some interest in uh, getting involved with our program. Um, uh, Wednesday, two days ago, three days ago, um, we had an appointment to meet with them. Uh, Gerald came out there and I met out there. We had another gentleman from the FAST team that went out there, and we met with two of the uh, group's psychologists. They're the two owners of the of the group, uh, their benefits director and their office manager, and we explained the program and what we do and what we look for and, and how we go about it, and we uh, talked a little bit about the fire service culture and the things we experience and, and the sort of... Uh, treatments that some firefighters might need. They were very enthusiastic and, and very interested in forming a relationship with our program and helping us get help to people that need it. We Great. as members of the peer support team, you know, like Gerald said, we a lot of our training comes from clinicians and comes from the Department of Mental Health. We as peer team members are not trained as clinicians, but we have some training similar to clinicians. We are trained on how to look for certain symptoms and how to recognize certain key elements that people are presenting to encourage them, should they need it, to go get clinical and professional help. So there's that fine line of we're peers, but we're not clinicians. We're a little bit in the middle. So right. our training, you know, with our training, I like to we all like to be able to say, hey, such and such, it might be beneficial for you to go seek out some professional help. We don't want it to stop right there. Uh, we would like we like to follow it up with, here's a place you can call. Here's a couple of different doctors that I know personally that I've worked with in the past, and I think it would be very successful if you went there. And I know they would be glad to to, to work with you. So it's important for us to keep a, a networking out there and building new relationships with different organizations. Uh, so our meeting on Wednesday with this group was 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 very well received, and I think it was a very successful meeting that we had, and it's going to continue to uh, evolve and evolve and grow. Yes, it's going to definitely become an asset for both us and for them, and more importantly for the firefighters of South Carolina. Yeah, that sounds very encouraging. What what can the public do for you? I mean, is there is there a need for anything from the general public to to help with this service or to um, you know to help with the firefighters generally? Well, when they when they um, have an opportunity to support us, um, uh, be it a, an event in their communities for their fire department, or be it uh, 
speaking to some of their legislators for uh, legislation that might be out there in supporting us. Anything people can do to to continue to support the fire service so that we can continue to take care of our firefighters is very important. Um, if The best example I know to give you is that if you are uh, at home on a, late at night and you have a fire in your house and you're in you're in your bed and you're trapped in your house and the fire department's coming, you it's, it's important for you to be able to know that your firefighters are going to come there in a good frame of mind and good shape, ready to do their jobs. And uh, we've had the fire service notoriously over the years. I came from the suck-it-up culture. My fire service career was mainly rooted in the suck-it-up culture. We didn't have any help. We were expected just to just to deal with it. And if you couldn't deal with it, to go find yourself a job somewhere else. We know that it's terrible. We've done a terrible job in fire service nationally uh, taking care of our firefighters from a behavioral health standpoint. We buy them Nautilus machines and give them gym memberships and do all sorts of things to try to help them physically. We've done very little in the past years until recently to take care of them behaviorally, and that's a huge, huge part. We want to be able to go home. We want to be able to have healthy marriages, healthy relationships at home, um, healthy relationships with one another, and that's all a part of this program. Yeah, that it's it's just you know very very. Uh, we're, you're very very fortunate in South Carolina to have offered this, and I think just like what Gerald said, it's very important. And I think this show is key because then people will have an awareness of this, and you know certainly feel free to circulate it because that maybe people in South Carolina itself are not really aware. So. You know, uh, provide them. Do you accept um, um, funds? Do you do fundraisers for this program? Uh, we have a foundation through the South Carolina State Firefighters Association. Uh, South Can you give Carolina. the contact information? Yes, it's, it's very simple. It's scfirefighters.org. Okay. Scfirefighters.org, and they can click on the foundation link, and they they will be told how to make a donation if they want to make a donation. Okay. If they and want to make it on behalf of the FAST that team. Program, Gerald? I'm sorry? I'm sorry. Can they specify that it go to your specific program? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we hope that they will. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, that's there's a, great. there's one thing that I want to, uh, one thing I'd like yes. to share with you before we close here. Oh, is certainly. What we have our, nine minutes. Go ahead. Our program is, we, we think our program is pretty unique, and this is why we think it's pretty unique. Uh, first off, we're very fortunate to be able to thank the South Carolina Firefighters Association for all that they do to support this program. But we've had a lot of other people who have helped us get to where we are today. One of those organizations is the National Fallen Firefighters Foundation. Without their help and their assistance, particularly in the early years, I'm not sure where we would be. Secondly, the fire department in the city of New York, without them and without their care and coming down here and training us and helping us, uh, with their experiences of their own, with their peer team, um, you know, we probably wouldn't be where we are today. We are not uh, the only show in town, and we're we're certainly not the only thing that's ever happened in South Carolina. Horry County Fire Rescue, which is the county where Myrtle Beach is located, has for some years now had a peer team, an internal peer team, and we have learned a lot from those brothers and sisters in Horry County, and we continue, they continue to be a part of what we do now in the FAST team. But our program, if someone said to you, are you a CISM team? Well, we aren't. Are you a um, psychological first aid team? No, we aren't. We consider ourselves, the FAST team in South Carolina, to be a best 
practices team. What does that mean? That means that when we put this team together, we sought advice from all of the uh, chaplaincy groups, the CISM groups, the psychological first aid groups, uh, many of the other programs that were available around the state. We brought everybody to the table because when you're trying to take care of almost 18,000 firefighters in 500 different fire departments, you need to be in tune with what's going on in their local communities. We know, for instance, that a lot of our fire departments for years have traditionally been taken care of by their chaplains. So we don't discount that. We have chaplains on our team that travel with us. Um, we um, don't necessarily do debriefings as they do in CISM, but there are a lot of techniques in CISM that runs parallel to what we do. So we try to decide once we go into a community or department just what their needs are, and we apply what best, um, you know, um, best program that we have or best methods that we have in our program to them. So that's what makes us a little unique compared to most folks. Well, that's, that's excellent information to know. Um, a couple of other things, oh, excuse me, I was wondering about. Um, when you, you implement this process, this, is there a hierarchy? Does it come down from the police chief that uh, once you identify that someone really does want to work with you, is there you know, a certain hierarchy in the process that it has to come down from on high? And, or is it at the gra grassroots level all the time? No, I don't think it It does not have to come down from the chief. Uh, it certainly could. You know, yep. uh, anybody can call us at any time about anything. Um, like we spoke of before, this is not just for incidents. Um, right. If there is somebody that, if there is an incident in a particular department, uh, a chief, one of the higher ups, of course, they are able to reach out to us and ask us to come out 100%. Um, but that's not necessarily always the case. We've had uh, 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 we've had firefighters that have reached out to us that have asked us to stop by their station. We've had different ranks uh, throughout the whole throughout the whole uh, uh, ranking system that have reached out to us to try to get our assistance. It's interesting that you mention that though, because we continue to try to evaluate where we are and reinvent ourselves if we need to. And one of the things that we learned a few years ago was that when we went into fire departments, um, where, as a matter of fact, it occurred in Myrtle Beach in Matt's department, um, the chief came to us and said, you know, uh, any time we have a bad incident or we have a line of duty death and we have a terrible call and, and the team comes in to help, there's never anybody to help the chief. There's never anybody to help me. He said, I'm at the top and I'm the one that's, you know, has to make the hard decisions about what happens or what doesn't happen. And I don't sometimes feel like I can sit in that room with all of my people together and, That's you know, vent my feelings. So we, mm -hmm. we actually went out and recruited, we recruited other chiefs in the South Carolinas to join our team who had experienced line of duty deaths and difficult calls in their own departments. And so we now have a chief's peer team so that when we go to an incident involving a, a bad call, we can bring somebody from our cheers chief peer team in to talk to the chief of the department while we're taking care of everybody else. So that's wow. that's even evolved. That, that's excellent. Wow, wow. Hey, I was wondering, oh, excuse me, we have about maybe three minutes or so. Can you have an example of a case that maybe you worked on that would demonstrate that, you know, going through the process and maybe has, has turned this firefighter around such that 
the person has come back whole or some um, an inspiring incident that we might be able to end our show with? Do you have anything that comes to mind? You know, there's uh, th- this may sound cliche, but there's so many of them. It's it's hard to uh, <laughs> it's hard to come pick up one. With. Yeah, yeah, it really is. I mean, uh, I've seen it firsthand. I know Gerald has. I, uh, most yeah. of us have. We've seen people on their worst day, and we've seen them go out to get help, and we've seen them overcome their obstacles and come back in a much much better place. So do they come back with a new sense of vigor and okay, I've overcome this and and I'm back again? Are they are they still enthused for the job or how does it change them? You know, how does it change them for the better? Well, you know, they've just developed methods to help carry things better. Um, you know, when anybody when a firefighter puts on an air pack, those straps. They get tangled up, they get twisted around, and it's very uncomfortable and it's very hard to carry that air pack. But over time, you learn how to adjust those straps and and distribute that weight across your body a little easier so you are able to perform your job to the best of your ability. And that comparison is exactly how we uh, look at folks getting help. Once you see things, once you see see things and hear things, you're never going to unsee them and unhear them but you can develop different ways to process and carry those things with you. So when we see people that are having issues, when we see them come back, they're in a much better place because they've learned how to carry those things with them in a comfortable manner. They're able yeah. to focus more. They're, they're able to be more motivated. They're more focused on performing their duties and being the best person that they can be. Well, I think that's a great analogy, you know, the physical and that goes emotional, psychological. Um, I want to make sure before we close out, uh, Gerald and Matt, could you please give contact information in case any of our listening audience would like to contact you, even if it's outside of the Carolinas, perhaps you can refer or to get more information, please? Sure. Uh, it's Gerald uh, Mishu, G-E-R-A-L-D, M-I-S-H-O-E. I'm in the Low Country region for the South Carolina FAST team. Uh, my number is 843-609-8300. That's, and uh, my email address is gerald at firefightersupport.org. Great. And Matt? Uh, my information, I work for the Myrtle Beach Fire Department, and I'm uh, one of the Grand Strand Region Coordinators for the South Carolina FAST team. My email is m bernacki m b e r n a c c h i at cityofmyrtlebeach dot com. Okay, that's great. I think it's uh, important to have that information. And Delilah, how can we get in touch with you? Get in touch with me for what? <laughs> um, <laughs> I just want to say, you know, I. I just for the sake of our listeners and myself, I yeah. you know I thank you so much for everything that you do yeah. out there as firefighters, and I think we need to be reminded often that as first responders, you know, you you're the first ones there that answer the calls, whether it's an accident or an emergency. It's not just you know putting out house fires. Um, there's just yeah. so much more that you do that I think you know as as the public needs to know, and we thank you so much for for being there for all of us. 
Uh, well, we appreciate you having us on today. Thank you. Oh, it's it's our pleasure. And will you please keep in touch with me? Perhaps we can of do course, something absolutely. else in the future. Okay, very absolutely. good. Well, then. Yes, well, thank you, Gerald, as well. Uh, and good luck thank with you. the program, as well. So we will close out this edition of Saturday Live. Please be sure to go to DonnaGore.com and ImaginePublicity.com. And uh, see all our offerings, and we will see you on the next edition of Shadow Live. Be well, everyone. Thank you, guys.